Gospel of Mark, we're in chapter 3 this morning, and if you remember, um, the Gospel of Mark is the newspaper version of the Gospel. I like that idea. That's how it is kind of viewed by a lot, because it goes over things quickly. We're already, we're only in the third chapter, and we're already well into the life of Christ, well into that period of his life where there is, he's gone from obscurity, he's gone from also public favor, and now he's at the place where opposition is beginning to come in his life already. We're only in chapter 3, and it just moves so quickly. I like that. There's a, a lot that the other gospel writers give us that Mark doesn't, but he hits the high points and takes it through quickly there. So up till now, you might think of it this way, that Jesus had done a lot of major things. He had done things that would authenticate who he was in the sense of being God, although he never really came right out and said that directly, not until later, but he validated who he was. Of course, we know from his birth, we've talked about that at Christmas, that he was born of a virgin, and all those prophecies in the Old Testament pointed towards that, the angels coming, the magi coming, and, and all the things that happened there were actually mostly already foretold, and, and we have a lot of miraculous things taking place, uh, the virgin birth just being one of them there, angel, angelic appearances. But now we notice that Jesus really is, really is coming to his own in the sense of being a teacher now, that's very clear. His teaching was considered amazing. That's the word that is often used to describe his teaching. People say, wow, this is amazing stuff. We never heard this from the, from the religious leaders of Israel. And um, they flocked to hear him from the village, and then they flocked to hear him from the surrounding villages. And pretty soon people were coming almost clear across country to hear him. In fact, that's when the religious leaders started showing up. But he also did miracles to authenticate who he was. He uh, healed people, he healed blind people, lame people, people with fevers, he cast out demons, and he raised the dead. And probably the miracles that we see, even in the Gospels, are just a fraction of what he really did. Because there are statements along with them many times that indicate there was much more that he did in that area. So he really caused not just uh, an interest, but a major revival of people's thinking. And, and as he did all those things, people were turning to him and they were coming to hear him. It's a little bit like a, something of interest. They didn't necessarily put their faith in him as the Savior yet, but they were certainly coming with the idea they wanted to hear what he had to say. Maybe he's the Messiah that's come to free us from the Romans, was probably among their major ideas in that. But he did a lot of miracles. He caused fish to jump into nets. He calmed the storm and so forth and so on. And then, as we saw the last time we were in Mark chapter 3, that he selected 12. 12 just ordinary, average fishermen, guys, and various other people to lead after he was gone. These are the 12 apostles. Not the kind of people that you would choose, not the kind of people that uh, most people would choose, because they weren't necessarily highly educated or anything like that. Uh, some had a little bit more, but some of them had questionable backgrounds, like Matthew, who was a tax collector who stole from his own people. We could say that. And of course, we have Judas at the end, and he's always listed at the end of every list, and he, always with the annotation that he was the one who betrayed the Lord. But the Lord knew that. 
So we have the first four there mentioned, and they are the ones that are seen the most often. And as you go down that list, they are the ones most often, the second group of four, a little less often, and the last group of four we really don't know very much about. But these guys were the ones who would literally turn the world right side up after Jesus was gone. But they needed training. They would be trained by Jesus. So people flocked to him. They flocked from everywhere, from every little village. And it got to be the, to the point when Jesus went anywhere in Galilee or wherever he was in, in Judea or Galilee that, that he just found himself flocked with people wanting to hear what he had to say. It was hard for him to get around. He'd gone up on the mountain to pray before he selected the twelve and came back down. And immediately they came to hear him. He had to go to the seashore. He had to stay out of the villages because he could preach on the seashore. Lots of room there. But he had to even ask for a rescue boat to be there stationed so that he could get in it if he was overwhelmed with people and then probably preach from that point as well. So Jesus made a big stir. And now in his point of ministry, he is well-known, and the religious leaders are coming to hear what this is all about. So we're going to start in verse 20. We looked into, of course, the collection or the selection of the 12 apostles last time. That's been a couple of months back. And now in the very next verse, in verse 20, right after mentioning Judas, it says that he came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. This is an interesting text, and it's not necessarily easy to pull it together. Because the part about the... Uh, unforgettable sin. You might have a hard time seeing how that fits in, but it all does. It all kind of weaves together as under the inspiration of the Spirit as, as Mark wrote these verses here. He came home, and what that means is uh, he'd been busy in ministry, and his home while he was in ministry was in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, a little place called Caesarea, right on the water there where Peter had a house. And you can still go there and see the remains of what they believe is actually his home. And um, he came home with Peter there probably, and, and it says the crowds just gathered with him. He was exhausted. He'd been up praying, and there's probably some other details we're not even aware of. People came to him, they wanted to hear him. He was by the water and so forth and so on. But now he just needed some rest. So a crowd gathered again, and the crowds were in the thousands now. They weren't in just the dozens or hundreds or anything like that. They just came in huge numbers, multitudes, which is pretty much a, a number that you, it's the highest reference to any kind of number that you could imagine in the New Testament. And they were, they were there, they were wanting to hear what he had to say, and they didn't necessarily always, would always believe it, but they wanted to hear what he had to say. So he goes to Peter's home in Capernaum. And uh, if you look at that place, it wasn't a bad place. It was an average little place uh, right near the beach, not very far away at all. And he was tired. He probably wanted to get in and get a good fish dinner, you know, and get some rest. 
I think Peter probably had a room assigned for him. Peter was the head of all the apostles. He's the first one listed, listed in every one of the lists. And he was a fisherman, just an ordinary person, but God would use him. So people gathered again. The crowd came again. They came in large numbers to the extent that they could not even eat a meal. All, be, all Jesus wanted was something good to eat, some bread perhaps. He couldn't even get a meal because the people came. They crowded into the house and they uh, were just amazed at uh, what his teaching and they wanted more of it there. And then in verse 21, it says that when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. And that's really the theme of this little section we're looking at here right away in verses 20 and 21, that Jesus was crazy. That's what's behind this here. And that's what Mark is trying to communicate to, his, to us here. His own people doesn't refer to his disciples. It refers to his mother and his brothers and sisters. Now keep in mind, if you're looking at a map of Galilee, Capernaum is right about here, but over to the west, a little ways into, maybe it's south slightly from there, maybe west, but it was west, about 20, 30 miles, is Nazareth. And that's where Jesus was raised. That's where his own people were. And they had heard about this, and so they were concerned about it because they wanted to take custody of him because of what he was saying. He was claiming things, perhaps claiming things that you would imagine that God would claim. And anybody that says they're God, they're either God or they're crazy. And so uh, they thought, we better get over there. Remember that Jesus spent some time in Nazareth, and, and while Mary knew that he was God because she was the mother of him, and she had the angel appearances and, and all of that, and the shepherds came, and the magi came, and all those things to confirm it to her and to, to Joseph. But um, the brothers and sisters didn't. And there were other family members that were born after Jesus was born, and then we don't see Joseph on the scene anymore after that much. So it appears that after the children were born, then Jesus was there with these others, these other kids in the family that were younger and he was older. And so he more or less probably helped his mother, I've always felt, he helped his mother raise those children. He knew what it was like to be a father in that sense also. But the, the kids were concerned about their older brother and... Um, they said, Mom, we better go. So she went along. She never says anything in the text here. In fact, this is the only place in the New Testament where she is mentioned again and not really any more later on, especially here in the book of Mark. They came 30 miles. That says something right there. To walk 30 miles wasn't an easy task. And, uh, but they were more used to it, I'm sure, but that's the way they got around. They came 30 miles. The news got to them 30 miles away, keep in mind. And keep in mind when Jesus had gone to Nazareth earlier on his ministry, he was rejected by the people. They didn't like what he did. He never did a miracle there and they tried to throw him over a cliff. It's up on a mountain top. They tried to throw him over a cliff. So it's not surprising that his brothers and sisters didn't accept what Jesus really was that was the Son of God. 
But they came along and they wanted to take custody of him, New American Standard says. The word there actually means something like that to uh, arrest him. That's really what they wanted to do. They were, they were doing what we would call today a family intervention. Have you ever heard of that term? If you've, been, if you've been involved in any kind of counseling, you know, with someone who in the family who's really having a problem, they talk about, let's do a family intervention. Let's get everybody together and gang up on them and convince them that they are going the wrong direction and stop taking drugs or whatever. This is one of those kind of things. They were going to try to whisk him away, maybe take him back to Nazareth, whatever, and, and um, talk some sense into him. I don't know about Mary, but I think she might have been a little bit influenced. She was just a person like anybody else. She wasn't, uh, she wasn't divine, even though some of the Roman church certainly makes it seem that way. But I, I think that she probably was a little bit confused. Joseph was gone. She just had all those kids to raise, and she was busy raising them. And some of their names are even in the New Testament. So certainly Jesus wasn't the only one. That's quite clear. And they, they become believers later on, but not at this point. Not at this point. They were concerned about him losing his senses, it says in verse 21. Losing his senses. He's, he's crazy. Uh, and maybe they thought, well, we need to get him out of here because he's, he's a religious fanatic. Have you ever heard that? People call you religious fanatic, you're blessed. And uh, that's kind of where it was going, and, and they were afraid that something was going to happen to him, and, and his claims and his miracles and so forth, how could he possibly do these things? He must be off. He must be following something that isn't good, and they wanted to get him out of it. He lost his senses there. He was more like a fanatic. fanatic. So... Uh, they try to go in and they try to do something about this. Now, keep in mind, here in verse 21, they're just leaving Nazareth. They're on their way. And now we're going to look a little bit farther in the text here because as we look farther, we'll realize that they show up later. So they're leaving in verse 21, but a few verses later, after some of the other events here, they show up. And this all has to do with the unpardonable sin. Now, we move to the second point, which is in verse 22 through 27. Now, in verse 22 through 27, the next major section here, and the scribes are there, and they are um, examining what Jesus is saying there. And basically, what they're saying is that he must be demon-possessed. It says in verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. He had been casting out demons. And he probably did a lot of that more than we perhaps realize. And it seemed like there north in Galilee, there was a lot of that that took place and happened. Hence they were saying that he was possessed by Satan or by a demon of Satan. And so they used the term Belzebul here, which was, a, <clears throat> which was a, actually an older word. And um, it came from a place called Ekron. And then there was a, there was a time when the uh, religious leaders didn't like it because it represented a, one of the gods of those people that was not, of course, from the Old Testament. And so they changed the name just a little bit to Belzebub, 
And of course, that referred to the Lord of the Flies. There's a book about that, the Lord of the Flies, uses that name. And the idea was that that was a, a smear on those people. And so the result was that they were looked upon as those who were, who were worshiping the Lord of the Flies, and the flies were the flies that hung around the dung heap. So it was a real, real negative slur on those people that the religious leaders had put across. But ultimately what it was saying was that he had kind of a demon in him, and that's what was going on here. So uh, that's kind of important to say because they were saying that Jesus was lying about what he was saying he was doing because he never said that he was possessed by that. And, and there's no indication that they really believed that because they saw his miracles. And the religious leaders knew something about miracles. And so when they saw the things that he did, you could not really question them. But they tried to make up something, and the thing they made up was that he was possessed by this, perhaps, Beelzebul, and uh, some kind of a demon there. So they were really lying about what they were saying about him, and they were, they were calling him a liar because he didn't confess that either. By the way, it's kind of interesting that Satan never does any real bona fide miracles in Scripture. He does things that look a little bit like that, but they're not the real bona fide miracles that Christ did. Only false ones, lying signs and wonders, they're called. Lying signs and wonders. So now Jesus responds to verse 22 with a statement about their faulty logic here. He says in verse 23, he says in verse 23, and he called them to himself. That's the religious leaders. He said, come on over here, guys. And he began speaking to them in parables. Keep in mind, this is in Peter's house. These guys had come probably all the way from Jerusalem. That's a long ways. That's a day or two walk. And now they're there. They're sitting in the room. It's just packed out. There's, there's people in every corner. They can't even get a bite to eat while... They're there, and so uh, they have this feeling about him. So Jesus responds. He says to them, as he called them to himself, he began speaking to them in parables. These are kind of like small little parables now here as he starts to speak with them in kind of a parabolic fashion as he gives a truism to define what he wants to say. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? In other words, how can Satan cast people out of his own domain? I mean, that doesn't make sense. It just doesn't work. It's like the army fighting the army. Like the U.S. Army fighting the U.S. Army. That doesn't make any sense. It's a civil war. And civil wars don't end up, don't end up good. No one really wins in one sense there. So it's kind of a truism when he said that. It's obvious Satan would not be casting out Satan. Demons wouldn't be casting out other demons, in other words, is what he's saying. You follow me? Can you understand that okay? And then he makes the statements in verse 24, 25, and 26 about a divided kingdom that cannot stand long because it eats at itself. Is really what it does. 
In verse 24, he says, If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And we know, you can go back in history, you can probably come up with uh, countries that have been divided against themselves. America was like that. You know, through the Civil War, it was a great weight upon America, but we somehow got through that, but we're divided against ourselves in other ways today. Verse 25 says, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Same, same logic, just kind of reemphasizing it. And then thirdly, he says, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. He adds a little phrase at the end. He is finished. So he's taking it from the simple to the more complex, from the simple, a house can't stand against itself, kind of a very broad, general term, and, and, and um, a kingdom, that is, and then a house more specific in verse 25, and then lastly, Satan. Basic concept, just from different actors, three times for the emphasis, three times. He knew their thoughts. He knew their thoughts. It says that... that he knew their thoughts in this text also. He could read their minds. Only God can read minds. And um, he says at the very end of that verse 26, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. I believe that's a little bit of a, a warning to Satan about what's coming, that he well probably knew from ages past as we look to the Old Testament for the history of where Satan comes into the picture and where he falls and all of that and then he cannot be renewed from that but we believe that he fights to try to be victorious somehow or another even knowing that he cannot. He is finished. He is finished here. He trapped them in their own logic. The spiritual leaders trapped them in it. They really couldn't answer the, how do you answer a response like that? It's a little parable here, kind of three parts here. Plus a warning to Satan at the very end of it. And then in verse 27, in verse 27, he kind of completes this thought here. He says, but no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds a strong man, and then he will plunder his house. So he was showing that how if there is someone in the house, a strong man said, let's say, for example, the demon, the demon who the Pharisees never really had any success with that, or anybody really, I don't believe they really have any kind of success on that area, <clears throat> that you have to be stronger than the strong man. That makes sense. Now, in the military, yes, there are some people that are stronger than others. We understand that. Basically, they stand as a unit. And so if you pit one branch of the service against themselves, you basically don't get anywhere except having a lot of losses there. But here he is he's emphasizing the fact that you have to be stronger than the strong man in order to win. And he's saying this in kind of a cryptic way to them. The strong man. Then he will plunder the house if you are stronger than the strong man. Demons were powerful. They caused people to wreathe and scream and dwell in the rocks and do really strange things. But 
they were the only ones who really recognized Jesus for who he was. When the people didn't, remember in the teaching earlier on in the book of Mark, the people were amazed at what Jesus said, and they said it was amazing, but when it came to casting out demons, the demons came right out and said, we know that you are the Son of God. And they recognized it far before the people did because they had an ancient history with Christ. So, in this verse, verse 27 there, he's talking about <clears throat> no one can enter the house of, um, of the strong man's house and, and plunder the property unless he binds the strong man first. In other words, that implies there has to be stronger, a stronger person than the strong man. And I believe that it's an implication that Christ is that person. Christ is that person. That's why he can throw them out. That's why he can exercise them or cast them out there. And so the leaders of Israel, as they are looking at what he was doing, they don't want to recognize that he has divine power, which he did, which he showed in his miracles. So they say that what he was doing was by a demon, even though they didn't believe it themselves. And therefore they were saying that Jesus is lying about what he is doing. He was a liar. So... Sometimes um, I think when we are born again, as I was at the time early in my life, I became very, very interested in the things of God and the spirits of God, reading the Bible and going to church and studying my Bible and uh, witnessing to people and talking about the Lord. And you become viewed as somewhat of a fanatic sometimes, you know. All my theology wasn't together yet by any means, but... Um, people did have that thought and concern for me. And they wonder if it's really real. And here Jesus is in one of these situations where he's doing some pretty amazing things far beyond anything that we could do. And they were really thinking, this Jesus is he's weird. And his family thought that he was, he was really crazy. And the religious leaders thought that he was lying about what he was saying. And really... A demon was doing it, although they couldn't really believe that either because they knew that that wasn't possible. So then we come to verses 28 through 30. And Christ gives a warning here. This is where the unforgivable sin comes in. Now, I have to say that I'm not sorry, but <laughs> it's a little strange. We go from the positive things of Christmas to the unforgivable sin all of a sudden that quickly, you know, but that's the Gospel of Mark. It moves quickly. So Jesus warns them about this unforgivable sin at this point in this context. You've got to keep that in mind to understand this. So I want to keep you with me so that uh, you don't lose where the cookies are, trying to keep the cookies down low here. In verse 28, he says, Truly I say to you, all signs shall be for, excuse me, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies, blasphemies they utter. But whatever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. He has an unclean spirit. So Jesus is saying that, and he's pinning it on the fact they were calling him demon, or demon-possessed himself, really, there. That's pretty much an unforgivable kind of thing to call the Lord of glory, isn't it? 
to say that he would be demon-possessed. Right off the bat, that would sort of make sense. And he starts it in verse 20 by saying, Truly I said, um, sometimes translated, Amen. It means so be it. It's a term that's found uh, in the Gospels only and is uh, only said by Jesus who spoke the truth and affirmed the word of God here. It's found 13 times in the Gospel of Mark. It's, it's an important statement to read because when you read that and see that, say, pay attention, this is important stuff here. All sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever um, blasphemes they utter, but what whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit is never forgiven. In other words, there's kind of two different groups here. There's a group of sins that you can do all kinds of things and you can be forgiven regardless of what it is, but the, whoever does this thing against the Holy Spirit doesn't have forgiveness in the end there. Very interesting here. Um... Twice in the New Testament, forgiveness was possible for those who had despised Christ and even killed him. So it doesn't seem to refer to them. Of those who delivered Jesus to the cross, Romans said in Luke 23, 34, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for, I, for they do not know what they were doing. He's saying to them, those who delivered him to the cross, he said, forgive them because they don't have full knowledge of things. They don't have full knowledge of things, even though they put him on the cross. And they were dividing up his garments and so forth. So that's one. And then also, the Apostle Peter told those who delivered Christ to the Romans to repent at one time. Those who gave him over to the Romans in Acts 3-17, he says, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. In other words, when they delivered him to the Romans, these whom he's referring to, they didn't have all understanding. They didn't have the full revelation about who Christ was yet. And then in verse 19, he goes on to say, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. So there still was forgiveness there. Now, when we talk about the unforgivable sin, we immediately begin to examine our lives, and many people have worried, did I commit the unforgivable sin? Did I perhaps have the, the emphasis of the Holy Spirit working in my life, and I didn't regard it, and I went the other direction, and maybe I've committed the unforgivable sin, and there's nothing I can do about it, and I'm going to die and go to hell. Or maybe some other particular situation that you, may that you may think was the unforgivable sin. Maybe it's a moral issue or some other issue. Who knows what? You name them. And you're concerned about that. And it's very interesting to read and study on this. Most of the, almost every scholar said, if that's where you are, you're worried about an unforgivable sin, then you're okay. Because conviction is still working in your heart. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but anyway. <laughs> but if you're not worried about it, and you just brush it off, there might be a concern. There might be a concern there for you. So, there was confusion over, by, over what was being said, and what Christ said. 
And now Christ takes it a notch higher. He takes it a notch higher. And uh, in this, when he says this, Jesus taught in verse 28, truly, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, if they blaspheme. But uh, um, that, that sin can be forgiven here, regardless of what they did, if they come to repentance is the idea here. Uh, but we must understand the context because some people don't have the full knowledge of Scripture. And it's very interesting, and I don't think we'll look at it this morning because we don't have time, but jot down Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And then jot down Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. And then jot uh, down Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 31 there. And it speaks of those whom God knows have crossed the line and won't be saved, the other ones who are not forgiven. And if you look at that closely, maybe next week or next time I'm back, we can take a look at that. Those who have crossed the line have full knowledge. They're not ones who just had a little bit and they reacted quickly, but they had the full knowledge. And they are the ones because now they have actually said things, done things against Christ directly and the Holy Spirit who affirms who he is. And so their sin is against the Holy Spirit. And it's impossible to again renew them to repentance, it says there. And you'll see that theme in those three sections in the book of Hebrew that have often troubled people. But keep in mind, these did not have the full revelation of scripture you follow me does that make sense well the scribes claimed that jesus had a devil that was the idea and uh, that was the point and his miracles were done by the help of some demon that was what they were positing even though they knew that couldn't be the case and they knew in their own consciences the work jesus had done was something you could only attribute to someone who was God, even though he hadn't really directly said that. The demons said that. They converted. And later on, the first person outside of that was, to say it again, later in the Gospel of Mark was a Roman soldier. Truly, this is a son of God. The Jews didn't get it right away. But they were rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit, that is, the scribes who were which they knew was real and instead were attributing it to Satan and this was a serious matter. They were in danger. There would be possibly no remission of sin. And by the way, I think we, it's hard for us to say when that actually is. We don't know, but God does. We can see the outward kind of manifestations of this in a person's life who has gone to church forever and ever and they know all the stuff and then they just stop going and they don't come back at all and they just reject all of that. That's the kind of thing, but we can't say for sure. Maybe there's something they didn't get. And we know the Holy Spirit is the one that brings them to life and we know that God is the one who chooses. That's not to say that's not true. That is true. But it's both the human and the divine side. So... The reason Jesus said this is because the scribes and the leaders were saying that Jesus had an unclean or demon kind of spirit. He did not, and they knew it, and they were calling the Holy Spirit a demon spirit, in other words. 
So what should we do if you don't believe in Christ yet and you're examining the facts and so forth? What should you do? I think uh, the demon or Satan can have an influence on you, yes. But obviously turn to Christ. Obviously come to repentance there and cry out to him to rescue you and um, from the terrible servitude of the soul that comes from that kind of thing. And we believe that a person that puts their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You and your house. Talking about the spread of the gospel to other members of the household for the Roman um, a jailer there. And so that's what we should do if there's a question in your mind and you're not sure. It doesn't mean that you're lost if you're questioning it. But if you have turned totally away from it and you had all the information that you could possibly have, you had all the revelation of Scripture and then turned away from it, then that's a different story. Only the Lord knows there. But for believers, what does this mean for us today? Well, first of all, I think it means we need to respect our families, doesn't it? Because Jesus had a family and he had to deal with them too, but we know that there, it goes beyond that, which we'll see in just a minute also. But um, if you're already delivered by the Lord, if he's already saved you, and there's no question about, your, about that in your mind, or maybe you've just worried a little bit about sinning against him, just be on guard because Satan still wants to attack you. And that's what Ephesians 6 is all about. Ephesians 6 talking about, put on the armor of God, you know. Put on the armor of God. And that's not a physical armor, but it's spiritual defenses against the things that Satan would throw at us, the fiery darts there. It's, uh, it's sometimes hard for us to do that. Read your Bible. Go to church, obviously. Counsel with those who are in knowledge of those things and grow in grace in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will be vanquished by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Stay close to God. Stay close to God. So, um, it's interesting when you read the Gospel of Matthew because Matthew and, um, and Mark here both have this account in it, but in Matthew's account he adds a little bit to it right after this point that we just covered here. And the point that he adds here was that Christ now chastises these leaders. These are the ones who are claiming that he's doing these things by demons, and he calls them vipers. He calls them vipers there. With no fruit. They had no fruit. And it sounds to me like these people, they had all the revelation, but they didn't have the good works. They didn't have the fruit of righteousness. They only wanted a sign from Christ, so he quoted the sign of Jonah the prophet, if you remember, who was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. And then he went to the men of Nineveh, and Jesus pointed out to the people who were saying this. He said to them that the men of Nineveh, who repented many, many centuries before, would stand up on the day of judgment and condemn this generation because one greater than Jonah is here. That's Jesus. He was greater than Jonah. So that was really a very pointed and direct statement to him also. 
Now we come to the last section here, verse 31 through 35 here, a short section. Christ defines now the character of God's family very clearly here. It says in verse 31 that the, his mother and brothers arrived and standing outside, they sent word to him and called for him. So now from verse 21, they have arrived. They've left, uh, they've left uh, Nazareth and uh, they've traveled 20, 30 miles and now they have arrived. And we don't know exactly how much time it is, but it seems like it's probably something like that. They've arrived here and they're trying, they look at the house where Peter is and they can't get in. It's just too full. There was perhaps hundreds, maybe even a thousand people gathered around, looking in the window kind of thing. And um, they want to get Jesus out of there, but they're a little bit nervous about that because if they go inside and they believe that Jesus is somewhat of a fanatic here, if they, if they go inside, they may, might be identified with him in some way for those who don't like him, like the scribes, and be branded. So they don't want to go inside. It's probably physically impossible anyway. So uh, they send a note inside. They send word to him and called for him. So person goes inside, the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, that's the person who was the messenger from the family, Jesus being in the center, hungry, <laughs> couldn't eat his dinner, people all around him asking questions, and they said to him, to Jesus, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And that's about all we know about that. They wanted to arrest him. They wanted to arrest him. Now, if Jesus would have gone with the family, if he would have gone with the family back to Nazareth, think of what would happen. That would immediately say that he was, being, he was playing into the hands of the religious leaders because the family kind of thought that Jesus was a little bit crazy and Jesus was agreeing with them and needed some counseling so he would go along with them and get some free time and relaxation and maybe better food than he got at Peter's house or whatever and it would nurse him back to health. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that. Jesus stayed right where he was. Interesting. So he answered them. He didn't go with the family. The family evidently left and went on their own. Besides, things were not copacetic back in Nazareth because they tried to throw him over the cliff the last time he was there. And he never did any miracles there. It didn't make any sense to go back there. So in verse 33, it says, Answering them, that is Jesus answering them, he said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother there. So he answered the crowd very simply there. And he's talking about, yes, he did have a real biological family. And I'm sure he loved them. I'm sure he helped raise his brothers because he doesn't come out in life until he's around 30, becomes um, available for ministry and appears on the scene. So he certainly loved them even though they didn't agree with him and they obviously didn't know much about that early on. He looks around and makes this statement to them and now he points to the people who are in the room who are all people who are not his mother and his brothers. 
And these are the ones that were wanting to know more. And certainly, I think there were a good number of people who had come to believe there by this time. And so he makes that statement. Whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and sister and brother. doesn't mean that they have to do works to get saved. The will of God is to believe. The will of God is to repent. The will of God is to put your faith in Christ. It's simple salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, from what the scripture says alone also. That's the essence of it. A lot of statements are very brief like that, that they're expanded in other places in Scripture. So whoever does the will of God, he's my mother, brother, and sister, and so forth and so on. doesn't mention the father because his father is, is not really there. His father evidently was dead. We don't know what happened to Joseph there. Now this is interesting. This is interesting. It was pointed out in uh, my study that... The family thought Jesus was crazy, and the scribes thought Jesus was lying, and the demons thought he was Lord. And a few people who were following now and beginning to come around, I think, on that too, which would be likely the apostles, they thought he was Lord. Maybe you've heard of the trilemma, that's C.S. Lewis who devised that thing for Christian apologetics, and that is basically the thing um, about Jesus, was he a liar or lord or lunatic? If he was a lunatic, he certainly could not be lord. If he was a liar, he certainly could not be lord. So um, we know that he wasn't... um, a lunatic because he was sane and everything he did and taught made a lot of sense and no one has ever changed the world more than Jesus. Um, No one has ever touched the world more than Jesus. He is the single person in all of divine, all of human history that is unique among people. So he wasn't a lunatic. He wasn't lying about what he said. People who talk about Jesus that don't believe he was God say, well, You know, he was a good teacher. He wasn't God, but he wasn't a good teacher. But if you're a good teacher and you say you're God, then you're not a good teacher. And if he was a good teacher and he was lying, he wouldn't be a good teacher either. The only option left in the trilemma is that he has to be Lord. Liar, Lord, or lunatic. Now, I don't know where you are in the spectrum of that, but if you're questioning who Jesus is or someone you know is, they're struggling, is he a lunatic or is he a liar? Perhaps this message would help just a little bit. But ultimately, when you look at all the evidence, when you look at all the facts, when you look at all the revelation of Scripture, it only points one way that he is Lord. He is Lord. And even the demons from behind the scene who knew what history had were the first to claim that. Which part of the family are you, by the way? Are you from the human family, like, um, like Jesus was with Mary and his brothers and sisters? If you're from the human family, even though you may not have had good parents, you may not have had good parents at all, maybe you've been abused and so forth, but no, they still are your parents, and we're to be respectful towards them, aren't we? But um, it's very important. It's very important. We are not all God's children in the same sense that we are our parents' children there. 
Jesus said, Matthew 7, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of God, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Then he talks about religious things that people have done. And said, that isn't the answer either. You prophesied, cast out demons, and so forth. That doesn't mean that you are born again. It's where your heart is and where your faith is and who it's in. That's the bottom line. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's those who have rejected the full deity of Christ. And we may be from an earthly family that believes, in a sense, just a little bit, or they acknowledge it, they go to church, they're churchy, they're religious, those kinds of things, but they don't really believe as Jesus is God. They're in great danger. And if anyone really has had all the information but just rejects it, puts it aside, then certainly they would be the ones who would be the ones more likely to have committed the unspeakable sin of rejecting Christ and doing that by speaking against the Holy Spirit, which gives the revelation. But there is a higher level of family, a higher level of family that Jesus speaks about here, and that is the family of God. And that's a closer bond than any biological bond. It's a bond that goes on into all eternity, doesn't it? Are you born again? Have you given your life to Christ? Have you repented and turned to him? And Paul said it clearly in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, it means true confession, and believe in your heart, that means real faith, from the inside out, Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You believe in the resurrection, which is also for you, then you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. So it's both internal and external. It's both internal, what you believe on the inside, but it also shows up on the outside. Now, if you can't talk because you have problem with your vocal cords, that's not, the, that's not an issue. It's talking about how the rest of your life exhibits itself for the world. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Happy New Year. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the day. We're thankful for this thought. We're thankful for your grace. And we are thankful for the message of Christ dealing with this very thorny issue. May you use it in our testimony and witness, Lord, and if anyone is really uncertain about where they are, may they seek us out for help and prayer. May they come to recognize that. May your Holy Spirit work to bring new life in them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.